0: Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic novel, The Scarlet Letter, is a deeply layered, morally complex example of American literature. The title of the book has entered our English colloquial conversational vernacular as an idiom that might refer to any shameful stigma a person carries because of some sin or failure. Thus, a popular song of late out in the world called Love Story by Taylor Swift blends a reference to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet with Hawthorne's title. A line in her song goes, Because you were Romeo, I was a scarlet letter. It's an effective combination, indicating that she was off-limits to this guy, like Juliet was to poor Romeo, but hinting that a pursuit of her might result in public shame. Or perhaps more familiar to many of you, Casting Crowns has an emotionally powerful song called Does Anybody Hear Her? The Christian group provides pastoral challenge to the church in addressing how we treat people in our body. They recognize the experience of many in churches who are the victims of judgment, rejection, and even shunning because of public sin or even because of sinful backgrounds long repented of. The repeated bridge of the song goes like this. If judgment looms under every steeple, if lofty glances from lofty people can't see past her scarlet letter and we never even met her. The song was written reflecting the real experience of real girls in the lead singer's youth group who sought intimacy in all the wrong places in part because they were missing fathers. There's an interesting irony regarding the scarlet letter. Can you all tell me which letter of the alphabet is the famous scarlet letter? And what does it stand for? Adultery. The irony is that, biblically speaking, if Hester Prynne had lived in ancient Israel, she would not have been guilty of adultery. The prohibition of adultery is stated in the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy 5, 18. You shall not commit adultery. How is adultery defined in the Old Testament? Adultery is defined specifically as a sexual encounter between a man and a married woman. A single woman cannot be guilty of formal adultery in ancient Israel. In the Scarlet Letter, as far as everyone knew, including, including Hester Prynne herself, her husband was dead when she conceived a child with the Reverend Demsdale. Sorry to spoil it if you haven't read it. Now, truly, to give further spoilers, even though no one in the story knew it, her husband was still alive, and she was, therefore, indeed, still married to him. So she was, in fact, guilty of adultery after all. Nevertheless, had she lived in ancient Israel under those circumstances, had she been truly found guilty of adultery, she might have been executed, along with Dimsdale. However, as we'll return to in our exploration of Proverbs 6, mitigating circumstances could result in the normal punishment of adultery, the death penalty in Israel, being set aside. Solomon will warn his son of punishment for adultery that comes to the adulterer, but he doesn't threaten him with capital punishment. He chooses to focus his attention on other kinds of punishment that may befall him. In fact, in order for the death penalty to be executed, multiple witnesses had to verify the sin. And with adultery, that wasn't generally likely. Most ancient cultures contained laws prohibiting adultery, but Israel's law was more more thorough in denouncing other forms of sexual sin. And Israel's law had different reasons for prohibiting adultery and other sexual sin. And Israel's requirement of at least two witnesses in order to justify the execution of both adulterer and adulteress was arguably an improvement over other ancient Near Eastern laws in this regard. Other cultures tended to allow the victim husband to determine the appropriate punishment. Professor Dan Block summarizes some of the reasons why adultery was considered a capital crime in Israel. He writes, "'Adultery was considered a capital crime because it undermined the integrity and covenant of marriage, violated the sanctity of sexual union,' defiled a human being as the image of God and threatened the stability of the community. Alistair Begg also observes, to commit adultery is to sin against God, our body, the partner in the affair, our spouse and our partner spouse. Moreover, in Israel, adultery is one of the types of sins that defiles the land and would result in Israel being exiled from the promised land. In Numbers 5, a lengthy and detailed piece of legislation defines a ritual procedure for how a husband should handle his unproven suspicion that his wife has perhaps committed adultery. Some of you may recall how strange this legislation is. We won't look at it in detail this morning. If you've got questions about it, you can always ask if you're curious. (laughs) But I'd like to draw our attention to some of the ways that that particular passage characterizes adultery. First, in Numbers five eleven, adultery is depicted as a man's wife going astray. She has turned away from her husband, turned away from her God, and turned away from her marriage vows. And in verse 19, the text says she has turned aside to uncleanness. Second, in verse 11 again, adultery is defined as breaking faith with her husband. This phrase translates a term that refers specifically to breaking an oath indicating that she's breaking the promise she made to her husband before God on their wedding day. She is breaking the marriage covenant. This term is sometimes translated as treachery. Ezekiel frequently uses the term to characterize the reason God exiled the Jews. Third, in verse 13, she has defiled herself, made herself unclean. And with all of this in view, let me understate the point. Adultery is bad, real bad. But it is no unforgivable sin, as we'll see later. Moreover, the prohibition against adultery has positive implications. Thus, as has been recognized throughout church history, the command, do not commit adultery, implies our responsibility to honor marriage and to keep the marriage bed undefiled, as Hebrews 13.4 tells us. We looked at that verse a few weeks ago, so we won't rehash it again this morning. Famously also, Jesus addresses the prohibition in the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, where he indicates that one might break the prohibition by lusting, and also by remarrying after an illegitimate divorce. Sometimes these statements are presented as though Jesus was deepening the prohibition or expanding it, but I don't think he's doing any such thing. Rather, I think he's doing exactly the same thing as Solomon does in our passage this morning. As we'll see in a few minutes, Solomon combines the prohibition against adultery with the prohibition against coveting another man's spouse. In Proverbs 6, 20 to 35, we have another tightly wound lesson from father to son. The lesson breaks down into three clear sections, but let's hear the whole lesson all at once. Follow along in Proverbs 6, verses 20 to 35. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. "...bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes." For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Now let's consider verses 20 to 24, the protection against adultery. Solomon begins with another direct address of my son, and he commands him to keep or preserve your father's commandment. Note the singular. Given the way the rest of the lesson unfolds, I suspect that Solomon is drawing his son's attention to a specific commandment, namely the prohibition of adultery among the Ten Commandments. It is the father's commandment, in that the father has the biblical responsibility to instruct his children regarding the Israelite responsibilities according to the Mosaic law. Likewise, Solomon says that the son must not forsake or abandon his mother's teaching. The word for teaching is the word Torah, which means instruction, but also has special reference to the Mosaic law. Thus, notice yet again how both parents are highlighted as discharging their responsibility for instructing their son and the son is responsible to follow and obey the words of both parents. Parents have a unified role here in bringing up their children according to the scriptures. Indeed, this introductory verse reflects the command to honor your father and your mother. The imagery of verses 21 and 22 is likewise reflective of the Mosaic law or a particular passage therein. Note carefully verse 21, bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck, The them adds together the father's commandment and the mother's teaching. The father's commandment and the mother's authoritative instruction are to be bound together, wrapped around the son's heart, and drawn together like a necklace around his neck. Thus, the son is instructed to internalize his parents' scripture-saturated teaching in his heart in a way that then flows out into visible actions in his life. As commentator John Kitchen writes, the father and mother are authorized by God to issue the commandment and teaching to their children. The parents have been vested with divine authority in the home to set the boundaries of behavior, thinking, and attitude for their children. Now in verse 22, there's a shift that's not brought out in English translations except in footnotes. The New American Standard Bible footnote correctly indicates that verse 22 shifts back to a singular pronoun. And that pronoun is most accurately reflected as feminine. When you walk, she will lead you. When you lie down, she will watch over you. And when you awake, she will talk with you. Lady Wisdom appears yet again. Solomon quickly and naturally personifies the commandment and the instruction reflected in the prohibition against adultery. Thus, Lady Wisdom is depicted as the son's constant companion. But wait there's more. As the son internalizes God's word in his heart, as it's been faithfully delivered to him by his father and his mother, God's wisdom will be his constant companion. Wherever he goes, she goes too. But she doesn't just accompany him where he goes, she takes the lead. The word translated lead is used in Psalm 23 of David's divine shepherd, leading him along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And, of course, that sets the stage for David's confidence as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. He will fear no evil because his divine shepherd is with him. Likewise, here, Solomon's son can have confidence as he walks through life, dark valleys and all, because lady wisdom is with him and is leading him into righteous ways of living, which includes avoiding adultery, as we shall see. Also, when the son lies down to sleep, he can rest easy, knowing that lady wisdom is there to watch over him, to guard him through the night. Having internalized God's word in his heart, as it's been faithfully delivered to him by his father and his mother, God's wisdom will enable him to turn away from the nighttime temptations that come in the dark and solitude preceding sleep. She stands like a powerful sentinel, sleeplessly standing guard so that the sun can sleep peacefully, not to be plagued by anxieties about giving in to sin or overwhelmed by guilt for having disobeyed God's word earlier in the day. Then, after a good night's sleep, the son will wake up to find a talkative companion. Having internalized God's word in his heart as it's been faithfully delivered to him by both his father and his mother, God's wisdom will lecture him lovingly and keep him moving in the right direction first thing in the morning. The word translated talk is a much louder term. One Hebrew dictionary describes the word as always expressing emotion as an emphatically acoustic phenomenon. The word is used to describe the emotional expression of both depression and excitement. Simply put, as another Hebrew dictionary has it, the word signifies loud, enthusiastic, emotionally laden speech. One commentator depicts what's being described here. Beyond guidance and protection, wisdom's greatest benefit is this. She can converse and reason, weigh and debate, until, following those dawn conversations, the youth will be ready to engage the day, better prepared for whatever challenges may arise. The sequence of these two verses reflects the command given to Israelite parents in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's pretty comprehensive. Let me just ask you, how often are you talking about the scriptures in your home? Husbands and wives, are you talking about what you're reading in the Bible or what you're hearing in sermons? Parents, are you daily, repeatedly, talking about Jesus with your children? Consider inventorying your conversations this week. Maybe you don't find yourself talking that much with the other people who live in your house with you about anything. I know there are some homes like that, but what are the topics of conversation that you tend to have? I don't think the expectation here is that we only talk about Bible verses or Jesus, And I certainly don't think we should artificially attempt to inject Jesus into every conversation about what we're having for dinner, or what sports we're enjoying, or what plans we're making, or the various challenges we face at work. But I am suggesting that we could all be a bit more intentional about talking about the scriptures together. I'm hopeful that our ABF switch starting next Sunday will facilitate some of those kinds of discussions. So I encourage you all to plan to stay and to be involved. So what do we take away from this? Well, we readers are being pressed on the importance of internalizing God's word as a protective measure against sin, particularly sexual sin. The psalmist famously expressed this in Psalm 119:11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This goes beyond mere memorization. There's a hint here from Solomon that the internalization of God's word should be carried forward by a daily kind of renewing the mind. We are encouraged here to reflect on God's word first thing in the morning. We today have a privilege that Solomon and his sons could hardly have dreamed of. You and I have the privilege of hearing God speak anytime we want to. We can open up a Bible or even have its words displayed on our phones before we even get out of bed in the mornings. That is to seek to hear God speak freshly, to hear Him speak externally. And in doing so, God will refresh and expand what He has already written on our hearts and stored in our hearts. Memorization of Scripture is a good practice, but rote memory is not what the Bible means by storing up or hiding God's Word in our hearts. The imagery is reflecting a deeper reality. We can memorize the words of the Bible and not be impacted, not be changed by them. What the Bible is presenting to us is the opportunity to be changed by God's Word to internalize God's word the way the psalmist did, the way that Solomon encouraged his son to do, is to seek an understanding of his word, to have the experience of having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus as he's presented to us in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. As we read it, as we memorize it, and as we study it. That's the key. To experiencing what's being described here the protection that the internalization of god's word offers here is not automatic as we've observed repeatedly all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in christ according to colossians 2 3 thus the protection offered the ongoing loud lecturing not from the pulpit but offered by lady wisdom in daily connection with your reading of God's Word and your reflecting and meditating upon it will ultimately be experienced by us as we look to Jesus. He is the one who promises to protect us from sin. He is the one who guarantees that the evil one will not, cannot, does not touch his people. It is seeing the glory of Jesus in the Scriptures that can pull us away from being enamored by the temptations that our heart produces or the temptations that the devil lays out in front of us. In verse 23 then, Solomon shifts to another familiar metaphor, God's Word as lamp and light. Thus the Father's commandment, the mother's instruction, are depicted with the same imagery as God's Word famously in Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp for my foot and light on my path. Thus, parents' Bible-saturated instruction of their children will serve as a guide and a protective light exposing the dangers along the path of life. Even as those parental instructions take the form of corrective discipline drawn directly from biblical teaching, they guide the young follower of Jesus to life. That's what the second half of verse 23 depicts. Commentator Tripper Longman elaborates, The words reproof and discipline are frequently used in the book and refer to the hard work, suggestive even of physical punishment that it takes to keep doing the right thing. One's natural propensity would be to give in to the strong temptations that lead one to leave the right path. So the parents remind the son that it takes work. The commandment itself, do not commit adultery, is a good guide for the behavior of the son and all of God's people. But combine this with the rest of biblical teaching regarding sexuality and you get a multifaceted, multi-angle defense mechanism in place to preserve you from evil. The scriptures highlight the true nature of our sexuality, offering to us the delights of sexual expression rightly bounded in marriage between a man and his wife alone, as well as warning us of the heartache and destruction brought about through various forms of sexual immorality. Because he's addressing his son, verse 24 highlights the dangers of a potential evil woman. Some versions have the phrase from your neighbor's wife here rather than evil woman. One Hebrew vowel makes the difference between those two phrases. The word translated "adulteress" is literally foreign woman, as we've seen multiple times already in Proverbs. As a reminder, the word foreign probably doesn't focus on where this woman is from, Her ethnicity, even though literally foreign women, did indeed prove troublesome to Israelites throughout their history, including Solomon himself, rather famously. Nevertheless, most likely the term foreign is being used figuratively to mean that this woman is foreign in the sense of off-limits or out-of-bounds because she is not his son's wife. Thus, it refers to any woman who is not his son's wife. The danger Solomon highlights is, yet again, her speech, which he describes as smooth, oily, or slippery. She will use her words to attempt to draw away the sun. She'll use more than her words, but Solomon first and foremost emphasizes the danger of listening to her words. Verse 24 is a transition verse as it launches us forward toward a consideration of the peril of adultery in verses 25 to 29. The command of verse 25 is a direct quotation of the 10th commandment. The words here translated, do not desire, are the same words translated, you shall not covet in Exodus twenty-seventeen. As much as he has highlighted the commandment in the previous verses, in the whole lesson, this is the only verse in which he actually issues a direct command. Solomon wisely recognizes that adultery begins with the desires of the heart and the son is responsible for ruling his desires. While the second line illustrates the peril of the woman's appearance, warning against the way she might use her eyes to allure, the son is given the full burden of not being drawn away. The reference to her eyelashes is a rare Hebrew word that more likely refers specifically to her eyelids. Solomon probably has in mind the way women might use makeup, such as mascara for the eyelashes or eyeshadow for the eyelids to accent and highlight the beauty of their eyes how different and unbiblical many people in the church think and teach on this issue so often books on purity or teachings delivered to our young people have indicated that girls are to take responsibility for boys' lust Yet neither Solomon nor Jesus gave any instructions that even hinted that the way a girl or woman dresses causes a boy or man to lust, and that women need to control how they dress to protect the men who, after all, cannot exercise control over their own eyes. Solomon here says exactly the opposite, even as he warns his son about the possibility that an evil woman might seek to entice him. Solomon doesn't address the evil woman and tell her to cover up. Instead, he addresses his son and commands him, don't desire her beauty. Don't let her capture you. You are responsible for your lust, not her. Jesus was the same. He spoke of your own eye causing you to lust, not the looks of another woman. I appreciate the corrective offered at length in the recent book, The Great Sex Rescue, by Sheila Ray Gregoire. She provides sociological, psychological, and medical research that dethrones the conventional wisdom that suggests that lust should be considered every man's battle because they are more visually stimulated than women and she offers biblical and theological reflections on the nature of lust as presented in the scriptures that are quite balanced. Rather than strategies such as bounce your eyes when you pass by a woman that you find yourself drawn to look at, she recommends instead looking at her directly in her eyes, giving a quick and friendly nod to greet her, and then turn away. She suggests that the problem with boys and men that leads to lust is not their tendency to be visually stimulated. Rather, the problem is a lack of respect for women as God's image bearers. And she points to the way that this topic has been treated in churches, in my lifetime in particular, over the past couple of generations as well as fueling the fires of this problem. Both men and women can be tempted to lust sexually. Both men and women can be stimulated, stimulated by what they see. In fact, the original rebellion of humanity involved a woman being stimulated visually. Folks, and men especially, lust is not every man's battle. Lust is not a unique problem that Christian men just have to recognize is always going to be a part of their life, and we all just have to grin and bear it. Sheila Gregoire draws our attention to Colossians 3:5, where Paul commands Christian men and women: put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. She comments. According to the Bible, once we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, we should expect that lust will be defeated. We're not to fight a perpetual battle. We're to win the battle. Sexual sin can feel like a thick chain that ties us down, but we are called to put lust to death and live in freedom, and we can. I am personally concerned that some of the material out there that has been offered to Christians to help them deal with the struggle has been offered, has been framed, this is, has framed this issue so unbiblically that it's actually keeping our men in bondage rather than helping them experience genuine freedom. The book series, Every Man's Battle, the DVD study, The Conquer series, and many others, unfortunately, provide so called remedies that are worse than the disease. Young men are not learning how not to objectify women. Men are being confirmed in their impotence and women are being encouraged to just understand their struggle. Don't expect too much from men. They can't help themselves. So young women are asked to carry a burden of managing their appearance in such a way that that they are constantly mindful that the men around them might be potentially preying on them with their eyes, and they are encouraged to view themselves as threats to other men. I'll quote Gregoire once again. She writes, Not being able to look at a woman treats women like threats rather than people. And what do you do with threats? You neutralize them. When dealing with alcoholism, you dump the booze down the sink and stay away from places with booze. Well, many people treat lust like it's alcoholism. Just get rid of the women. Or at least tell them to cover up. Defeating lust is not about limiting a man's encounters with women. It's about empowering men to treat the women around them as whole people, daughters of Christ. The key to defeating lust is not to avoid looking at women. It's to actually see them. Jen Wilkin concurs with this sentiment, if you prefer a more familiar source to many of you. She writes, also appealing to Colossians 3.5, too often lust is seen as a beast to be tamed. Yet Paul seemed to think differently on the matter of sexual immorality. He seemed to think we could kill it. God intends for us to strike it down. But what is the knife that slays the beast? We need a better blade than any forged by human hands, one aimed at ridding our hearts of disordered desires. Praise God, we have one. The blade that slays the beast is the word of God, made living and active by the Spirit of God, dividing thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. Proverbs six twenty six, as we return to our text, is difficult to translate, and its point is not super clear. Solomon is offering a reason, a motivator for his son for why he must diligently refuse to desire the beauty of a woman who is not his wife. The verse highlights a contrast between hiring the services of a prostitute and pursuing an adulterous relationship with a married woman. The ESV rendering lines up with most English translations, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, which implies that hiring a prostitute might not cost very much, while the second line indicates that adultery will cost you your life. The ESV provides an inter- alternative translation in a footnote. For a prostitute leaves a man with nothing but a loaf of bread. I think this alternative re- rendering fits better with other scripture. For example, Proverbs 29.3 says, "...but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. Thus Solomon points to sex with a prostitute as costly. Doing so will leave you destitute." so as to amp up the even greater peril of adultery. Solomon is a brilliant poet. He characterizes the married woman who pursues adultery as a vicious lioness, prowling around looking for someone to devour. Peter used the same imagery to describe Satan. The prophet Ezekiel used the same imagery of women who would lead men to worship false gods. Consider Ezekiel 13, 18-20 where Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy against false prophetesses in Judah and say, "'Thus says the Lord Yahweh, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive?' You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms, and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds. The Lord promises to rescue his people from the deception of these women. And he promises to judge the women who would lead his people to worship false gods. Similarly, Solomon is giving his son the key to protect him from the deception that an adulteress might utilize to lead him away from faithfulness to his God and faithfulness to his own wife. He reminds his son that his life is to be considered precious valuable not to be thrown away in pursuit of satisfying evil desires that arise from his own heart. Usually, the adulteress, the married woman, won't see it this way. Most of the time, a person pursuing sexual pleasure with someone who's not their spouse is not intending to destroy the other person. Nevertheless, Solomon is painting the picture with the inevitable results in view. Regardless of real intention and motive, the results are going to be catastrophic destruction. To further motivate his son, in verses 27 and 28, he indicates that adultery is playing with fire. While Solomon is merely using a vivid image to motivate his son not to even consider adultery, Jesus indicates that adultery is moving toward eternal fire. In Matthew 5:28, right after indicating that lusting for a woman who is not your wife breaks the prohibition against adultery in the Mosaic law, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Paul would later say that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. The author of Hebrews promises that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And the book of Revelation indicates that the portion of those who refuse to repent of their sexual immorality will be to eternally reside outside the new creation in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Scorched feet and burnt clothes is quite the understatement. Nevertheless, Solomon presses the point simply in verse 29. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now, let's not over-literalize the word touch here. This is not to warn against the danger of hugging or shaking hands with a person of the opposite sex. Recall the dangers of viewing people of the opposite sex as, by default, threats. The word touch is used figuratively here as a reference to a sexual touch. Finally, in the verses 30 to 35, Solomon elaborates the punishment of adultery. Whereas the Mosaic Law lays out capital punishment, the death penalty, for those caught in the act of adultery, Solomon highlights a different kind of punishment here. Verse 30 is another difficult verse to translate. Students of Scripture see Solomon's point differently depending on whether the first line in verse 30 is intended to be a statement or a question. As it is in most English translations, the ESV says, people do not despise a thief if he steals. If this is Solomon's intention, then he is suggesting that society generally understands a thief's logic. Driven by the desperation of hunger, it's understandable that a thief would steal food to stay alive. He's still accountable and will be punished, but people don't despise him, don't look down on him. This is to provide a contrast with the adulterer whose sexual encounter with a married woman makes absolutely no sense. The other way of viewing it is reflected in the RSV. Do not men despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry? The next verse then mentions his punishment that the thief who has been caught must fully compensate the people he robbed with his own resources. Thus the question affirms that yes, People do, in fact, despise a thief when he steals food to satisfy his own appetite. Rather than work to earn income, to buy food to satisfy his hunger, he resorts to theft, a breach of another of the Ten Commandments. Thus, in this way of viewing the point, the contrast between a thief who has been caught versus an adulterer who has been caught is in the severity of the punishment. The thief must financially compensate for the theft, Solomon indicates that, by contrast, no amount of money in the world will compensate for what the adulterer has stolen. I believe this is the better understanding. The Bible does not treat theft lightly. In this way, Solomon contrasts in these verses, Solomon's contrasts in these verses are parallel to the contrast he made in verse 26. Hiring a prostitute will cost you a lot, but adultery will cost you a lot more, ultimately everything. Likewise, the aftermath of being caught stealing can be remedied with enough money, but the aftermath of being caught committing adultery cannot be remedied by any amount of money. In verse 31, the reference to a sevenfold payment is probably not to be taken literally. According to Exodus 22, the repayment expected of a thief is between double and fivefold. Sevenfold is probably utilizing the symbolic value of the number seven in scripture to say that the thief, Will be required to completely compensate for his theft. Bruce Waltke summarizes the satisfactions for damages vary according to the circumstances, ranging from double to fivefold, but never sevenfold. Normally, the thief had to pay back double because, in addition to requiring that he return the stolen property, justice demanded that he himself be defrauded the figure, the amount he intended to steal from his victim, seven times is a figure for full compensation, covering all the compensations demanded by the law. It probably does not reflect a more severe punishment than does the book of the covenant. In verse 32, Solomon characterizes the adulterer as lacking sense. Literally, this is lacking heart. The, adulteress is, the adulterer is heartless. But the idea is not the same as the way we tend to use the word heartless, meaning uh, someone's insensitive or cruel, A better equivalent, though not very nice, would be to say he's brainless. The person who commits adultery has lost his mind. The phrase appears several times in the book of Proverbs. The phrase characterizes the fool. Some specific conduct associated with this description includes belittling one's neighbor, following worthless pursuits, and putting up security for one's neighbor, like we talked about last week. The sluggard is described as lacking a heart in Proverbs 24.30 and being heartless in this sense is given as the reason the fool dies in Proverbs 10:21 all the while the one who lacks sense enjoys his foolishness according to Proverbs 15:21 what does the brainless heartless person need the rod of discipline according to Proverbs 10:13 solomon's point here is that adultery is not only sin it's not only treachery, it's not only defiling, it just doesn't make sense. And why not? Proverbs 6.32, he who does it destroys himself. More literally, the person who does this destroys his own soul, his own life. Earlier, he depicted the married woman as hunting down the life of the young man. And the word translated life or soul, or here, self, is the same word translated appetite in reference to the thief in verse 30. Thus, the thief steals to satisfy his appetite or to save his life, but the adulterer's adultery destroys his own life. While Solomon does warn of the danger a married woman who is on the prowl poses, he finally places the burden on his son to refuse going down that road. And if he does, he will bear the blame. As verse 33 says, He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. The word translated wounds often refers to a plague from the Lord, many times in the form of a disease. Thus, there may be a subtle warning of the possibility of a sexually transmitted disease. This might be the ancient equivalent of a parent crassly showing their children pictures of the horrifying effects of some STDs as a deterrent against them considering pursuing sex before marriage. However, there's also a play on words here. The word is related to the word translated touch, back in verse 29, referring to sexual touches in the pursuit of pleasure. Oh, there might be temporary pleasure in pursuing the forbidden fruit of another man's wife, but ultimately there will be nothing but pain. Indeed, as one writer observes, but when lustful curiosity is sated and glamour fades like yet another episode of a soap opera, adultery is shallow and boring and it leaves an aftertaste of guilt. This true observation combats the lie that often fuels adulterous pursuits. Someone gets bored with their own marriage. There's just no sexual spark anymore. When you notice that your sexual expression with your spouse is not as enjoyable as it used to be, don't look outside your marriage for a remedy, and don't just give up and say, well, I guess we're just an old married couple now, there's nothing new under the sun, and there's nothing going to be new in this bedroom. No. Communicate with each other. Rekindle the spark. Sexual expression in marriage can get better with practice and communication. As we considered a couple of weeks ago, prioritize giving sexual pleasure to your spouse. That is the biblical key to a healthy sex life. The shame and disgrace of adultery that Solomon warns of centers on the fury Of the jealous husband. The Mosaic law prescribes the death penalty for adultery. Both parties are to be stoned to death. However, to enforce capital punishment, there must be at least two witnesses to the crime. Adultery tends to be kept effectively hidden from view. The husband may, in fact, walk in on his wife with another man, but his eyewitness testimony will not be sufficient for the courts of Israel to enact the death penalty, which the victimized husband will surely desire. In these cases, in practice, it seems that paying a husband off was sometimes attempted or monetary fines were imposed. Solomon warns his son that money won't be enough. The wrath of a husband provoked a jealousy by his wife and another man is severe and dangerous. However, as one writer reminds us, this jealousy was not a selfish, sinful, or petty feeling of envy for which the husband deserved censure. Rather, it was rightful zeal to protect the exclusively intimate covenant relationship of marriage as God intended it. Jealousy in this sense is good and right, but it has the potential to overpower good sense and result in sin, violent, deadly sin. Though Solomon focuses his attention on the danger a jealous husband will pose to his son if he should choose to, to pursue adultery with, a man, with that man's wife, We don't get any reflections here on the jealous husband's response to his adulterous wife. There is an implication in the Mosaic law that he had the right to divorce her. Jesus seems to reinforce this as well. Adultery breaks the fundamental aspects of the marriage covenant. Both parties in adultery are guilty, and the married woman should recognize the self-destructive nature of adultery as well. Every aspect of the warning Solomon addresses to his son could be easily turned around as an appropriate warning for his daughters. And the protection offered by God's wisdom in God's Word is the same for women as well. So while, th- while Solomon focuses on warning, I cannot leave it there. We must conclude where Solomon does not go by considering the pardon of adultery. Though Solomon doesn't discuss the possibility of forgiveness or what repentance looks like, Jesus the one greater than Solomon, and the rest of the New Testament has some things to say about that. There were adulterers and adulteresses in the church of Corinth. After Paul reminds them that adulterers and a host of other kinds of sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God, he adds in 1 Corinthians 6:11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of And by the Spirit of our God, adultery can be forgiven. The shame of adultery can be washed away. Someone guilty of adultery can be holy. Someone guilty of adultery can be righteous. While Paul here probably reflects on the past pre-Christian lives of his Christian audience, we also know that one member of that same church, presumably a professing Christian, engaged in a sexual affair. We usually focus on the incestuous nature of the relationship, but the sexual immorality Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 5 may also fall under the specific category of adultery. The Corinthian Christians somehow arrogantly tolerated one of their members engaging in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Paul doesn't sweep this under the rug. He insists that the church must expel the man from their congregation given that Paul does not address the woman's role in this sexual immorality. She is likely not a member of the church and probably not a believer at all. But the man was a professing believer, a member of the Corinthian church. Paul doesn't call for his execution. Rather, he challenges the church in 1 Corinthians 5:5 to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds bad, real bad. But Paul has a further purpose in doing this. He adds, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The incestuous adulterer may still yet be saved. When adultery or sexual immorality of any kind occurs among Christians, it must be taken seriously. Paul spends a considerable amount of time in this chapter warning the church about the negative impact sexually immoral people can have on the church as a whole. And he commands the Christians not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, not even to eat with such a one. This is what it looks like to deliver someone to Satan. Nevertheless, Paul's hope is that God will use Satan to bring this person to repentance. Yes, you heard me right. In the absence of Christian fellowship, in the wake of clear biblical judgment of a person's unrepentant sin by the church, the Lord allows Satan to inflict fleshly pain and circumstantial suffering as a form of discipline intended to press the sinner to despair of his guilt and flee from his sin to find Jesus as his only Savior. Many students of Scripture believe that is what happened to this man. In 2 Corinthians 2 5, Paul speaks of someone in the church who had caused sorrow to both Paul and the Corinthians. This man was punished by the majority of the church, probably alluding to his expulsion from the church. And it may be. That Paul is referring to the man who had carried on this adulterous, incestuous relationship. Thus, in 2 Corinthians 2 7 and 8, Paul has heard of this man's repentance, and he therefore instructs the church so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Commentator Philip Hughes writes, the Christian who falls into sin, however deplorable his sin may be, may still look to Jesus Christ, the righteous, as his advocate with the Father. How thoroughly Christ-like, then, is Paul's role here as he acts as advocate on behalf of the repentant offender at Corinth, urging the Corinthians now to reverse the disciplinary process by receiving the offender back in a spirit of forgiveness and love. Let no repentant sinner ever be forced to wear a scarlet letter in the church, either literally or figuratively. I'll close with the call of the prophet from Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon would you pray with me father your mercies are new every morning and your grace extends to the highest heavens it is measureless and infinite what barriers are there to us receiving your grace as the sinners we confess ourselves to be oh father thank you thank you that your grace is sufficient To wipe away all our sin. Past. Present. Future. Potential. All of it. We thank you for the infinite value of the death of our Savior. His precious blood purchased our precious lives. And we pray that you would grant repentance to those who hear the proclamation of the gospel. Whether it be through this message this morning through a tract sitting in a park bench or through your word opened up in conversation with others. We long to see sinners saved, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Thank you that you've done that for us who know you. We pray that you would do it again and again and again. And I pray that you would draw back sinners who have left the church for whatever reason who've abandoned their walk with you, who've turned towards sin, who've given up on the pursuit of your love and your grace, and I pray that you would turn them back. Some who might be sitting in this room even, who are cold and hard toward your word, but sit here even still. Use your word to penetrate stony hearts. Use your word to break through the hardness and transform sinners. And help us as a church to be welcoming to be eager to extend love and comfort and forgiveness to those who have failed, maybe publicly, maybe spectacularly. Your grace is far more spectacular. Let us celebrate it. Let us rejoice in it. And let us put our faith in it for ourselves and for our neighbors and ultimately for Jesus' own sake. It's His glory we want to see magnified. And so we pray these things in His name. Amen.